Previously on Gigdamin Paws. They I have family in Tucson. Um and their their uh their Saturday nights consisted of driving down the boulevard and there was this big glass building and they would look at themselves driving in the in the reflection. And then they would do a U-turn and come back and do the same. <laughs> Today on Gigdamin Paws. Uh I'm I'm originally from there, so I got the the uh the joyous privilege of staring at the flat horizon and being like, ah, yes. Everyone is tulip. Everyone is tulip. Everyone is tulip. Welcome back! My name is Guy Hasson and you are listening to Gigdom in Powers. Gigdom in Powers is the podcast that highlights creators and fans in the geek world who do not often get to be highlighted. It's these people who make up almost all of the geek world by talking to each person, by hearing each of their stories. Gigdom in Powers creates a huge, giant, world-sized quilt of the geeks all around the world. Each person is a story, together we are one story, one huge Geekverse quilt. Today's guest is Dave Baker, indie comic book writer and creator, including Everyone is Tulip, which was just named one of the top 10 comics of the year by Library Journal. If you read it, which you definitely should because it is amazing, you would get the little thing I did in the intro. In any case, I love talking to creators who can't not do the thing they do. Dave talks about geekiness, about writing, about being indie, and so many things. This is this is a fun, thought-provoking, deep conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Tell us a little bit about your origin story. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I, I write and draw comics, and... Um, I first got into comics by uh, the Franco-Belgian uh, comics Tintin by by Hergé. Um, I was obsessed with with boy adventures and Nancy Drew and kind of globe trotting uh, stories as a as a little kid, and um, and I I was obsessed with specifically Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew, and I I didn't really understand the difference between novels and comics. I just kind of thought of them all as books, and so my local library had a very large selection of uh, Tintin comics and it, it just changed my life. I was like, oh, this is what I have to do. And so basically what from when I was a, I think I was my first memory, like concrete memory of reading Tintin is when my sister was being born in the hospital. My aunt was reading Tintin to me mm. and doing the voice of Captain Haddock. Um, and I was, we're all three years apart. So I was probably three, you know, three, three and a half, something like that. Um, and uh, it just, you know, completely unlocked my brain. I was like, oh, this is amazing. And so I've kind of been drawing and making comics ever since. And uh, what kind of comics did you like, you know, when you grew up a bit, like uh, six and nine? Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, yeah, I, so... Tintin kind of led me to more traditional mainstream stuff like X-Men and Spider-Man, which then led me to more independent stuff like Dan Klaus and Hernandez brothers and um, uh, 
Craig Thompson was really formative for me. I, I loved uh, Blankets as a teenager. Um, mm. And then from there, I started getting into like real hardcore indie stuff um, like Channel Zero by Brian Wood. I loved that book. You know, it's a little weird to talk about Brian Wood now after everything that's come out about him. But at that point in time, I really loved uh, Channel Zero. Same thing. There was a real there, uh, there was a book, an indie book that I found in high school called Teenagers from Mars, which was about um, a, a boy who uh, works at a Walmart style chain in a town where comics get outlawed. And he kind of takes up a uh, kind of Bonnie and Clyde-esque uh, crime spree across this small town, kind of like standing up for uh, freedom of speech and the ability to publish and sell comics in this kind of backwards small town. Uh, and that that book, like, uh, that was that was it for me. I was like, oh, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I want to make shit like this. Um, I, I've kind of, you know, been making comics ever since. So when did you start making comics? Like what age? Um, I guess it depends on what you count. Like, do we count it as like a, an actual published thing? High school. No. Yeah, I, yeah. You published just, something in high school? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, previous to that, though, it was just like, you know, me sitting at the kitchen table, filling notebooks and notebooks and notebooks and notebooks with, you know, little comics and drawings and, and stuff. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I was, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I have them all. Yeah. Um, some of them are really weird and some of them are just completely unintelligible. Some of them are just like, I don't even know what's happening. Like I knew as a kid, I thought these were like airplanes shooting at each other, but it's just like a page of scribbles. Like, <laughs> I don't even know what this means. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I had a character that I, would, I was really obsessed with for a while um, called The Stranger. And he was like a, he wore like a slouch. It was basically the shadow. It was just the shadow. He had like a slouch hat and like a, a popped collar trench coat and uh, he could turn invisible. And I made a bunch of weird little comics about this, the stranger character. But I mean, they're not like, you know, they're, they're the comics of like a nine-year-old or a 10-year-old or whatever. Um, yeah. Sure. So how did you get to publish your first uh, comic book as a teenager? How does that happen? Yeah, so I, I worked at a comic book store in high school. And there was a a little clique of people who all met at the comic book store every Thursday and they were all artists, um, local artists. And some of them were, you know, like kind of borderline pro and some of them were just starting to get into it. So, you know, it was a, it was a pretty cool scene of, I don't know, 10, 15 people who all self-published and, and made books and did stuff. And through the, the people in that clique, I found a printer and I, uh, learned how to letter and I, you know, it, it basically was that, that small click of people really helped me navigate that world and publish books and zines and stuff. And I was doing that for a while. Um, and then I just kind of kept leveling up and, you know, ended up publishing a couple of graphic novels with some people I met in those circles and they, you know, it just kind of built from there. How did people know you? How did you get the word out? Is it, mm. you, is it for the other uh, creators? I mean, yeah, I mean, it was a lot of conventions. It was a lot of driving around in my, you know, shitty car, <laughs> going to all kinds of conventions over the Southwest. And that was also kind of like during the, the like 
just the like tip of the spear of like comics Twitter kind of being a thing because Twitter was like kind of starting around that time and uh, MySpace was kind of t- starting around that time and so there was all these like well little... what times when are we early 2000s uh, yeah 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 okay yeah yeah um, so it was it was around that that point in time when I you know it's like a three or four year gap right like I think I was in high school from like 2002 to 2006 I think um I should know that <laughs> I should know what years I was in high school but I kind of don't really but I think it was around that time um and uh so you know that was kind of like towards the end of MySpace being relevant and towards the beginning of Facebook's ascent and Twitter was kind of like sort of starting in that time. So there was a lot of like, you know, there were a lot of, like I was friends with Robert Kirkman on MySpace, like, you know, and we, I don't, I'm not going to say we sent a lot of messages to each other, but I definitely was like, I love the walking dead. And he was like, cool. Thanks, bro. (laughs) (laughs) You know, because he was just like a guy, right? Like he was a guy self-publishing through Image and I was a teenager being like, I love this. Um, So it was a lot of that. It was a lot of kind of like the beginnings of what kind of everybody has to do now of like digital marketing and beating the drum and being your own advocate and that kind of stuff. Um, But it was a really interesting time because so much of that was like, the end of the forum, like the, the online forum world and the beginning of kind of the digital scene in terms of like comics on Twitter, having a whole kind of chunk of people that are all talking and reading about it, you know, whatever the topic du jour is. Um, and so I was in a couple online forums as well. Um, yeah, it was, it was a fun time. I, I kind of wish that forums were still a thing. They kind of exist now because of like Discord and stuff like that. But it's just a, just a different. It's a different vibe, you know. Yeah, yeah, it is. I, I, I can tell you that in Israel, because of the forums, there's uh, the the people who like science fiction and fantasy found each other because before that we didn't have the internet, and suddenly mm. you had a science fiction forum. People came in, and you mm. found there were pe- other people except you. You know, it's a smaller country than uh, the U.S. Yeah, and I think the thing that's really cool about forums is that there's a personal connection, whereas, Mm -hmm. like, on the Twitter side of things, you know who everybody is in the scene. Like, you know who the players are, who the, in air quotes, thought leaders, who are, like, they've got the hot take about whatever that book is that everybody's complaining about, or that the the person who's going to say, you know, this creator is bad news, or whatever the Twitter topic of the minute is but the thing about forums is that it's less a couple people having a conversation and then everyone else watching that conversation and like vague tweeting about it and more an actual back and forth exchange of ideas there's actual kind of social ramifications when you're a dick like there's so many people in the kind of comics social ecosystem who their whole brand is just like being kind of snarky mm-hmm. and like that, that gets old real quick when you have to like interact with someone on a one-to-one basis. Um, so yeah, there's, there's part of me that misses that. 
time period a little bit. And then there's another part of me that's like, eh, it's fine. <laughs> I'm not too worried about it. Yeah, you know, I remember, excuse me for being uh, so old. I remember in the early 90s, I went uh, to London for the first time. And my father was uh, at the university. So he said, you know, there's this new thing called email. You know, people in the university write to each other and it appears immediately. So go to my friend in this university and I will be able to write to you immediately. Uh, and I went there, and it didn't work. It didn't. <laughs> oh work. no! Yeah. Oh no! <laughs> That's the first time I saw email. Wow! Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's a weird it's a it's weird how much those digital advancements just completely shape the way we interact. Sometimes in a great way, and sometimes in a really terrifying, not so great way. Um, yeah. You know it feels like we're on the brink of another version of that right now with all of this web 3.0 chatter. I, I, I don't know if it's actually going to be as substantial as everyone is claiming it's going to be, but it, it's going to be interesting one way or another. Even if it's not as substantial, I'm really looking forward to seeing all of these people being like, having to be like, uh, no, I didn't mean that it was going to reshape everything. I meant it was going to just be like kind of fine. I think like I've been looking into it uh, recently as well, trying to think what could happen with it. And I think uh, basically you could take Kickstarter, like for the stuff we're talking about, you know, people yeah. having their uh, comic books and you, could you give, you know, trying to find $5,000 to get the next issue out or something uh, and uh, to get the graphic novel out. You could do a Kickstarter with NFTs and then everyone who gives, who pays, also gets a percentage of uh, the financial rewards now and forever. So if you if you Robert Kirkman and someone finance you know paid a hundred dollars to help you uh, you know publish an image, then they get a little part of whatever he gets when he's a, he has a television show. Yeah. So I think it's completely going to replace all the Kickstarter things because it's better for everyone. It's better for the artists because. Whoever has that the token that sold, you know, I I actually backed uh, Robert Kekman when, when he just started out. I can sell. It cost me fifty thousand back then, but now it's ten thousand dollars. So I sell it for ten thousand dollars. I get a part, but the artist also gets a part. So that helps everyone. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, I mean, yeah. I don't. I don't really want to have a whole conversation about NFTs because that's a whole. Let's not. We're other... talking about your journey. Yeah, yeah, but I but but I just just wanted to say briefly that I think that there's a lot of speculation and interest in it and I understand both sides but most of the time I'm like this is just forced scarcity bullshit that we went through in the 90s. Like this is just beanie babies. Like I don't know that this is going to reshape everything. Maybe it will, maybe I'll be wrong. I don't know. Um but it's 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 an interesting conversation regardless. Sure. And I agree. The, the, the false scarcity, the trying to to do it just to get money, is is just yes. collapse. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, where your story? You were publishing. <laughs> you had to publish. Yeah, um, yeah. Back in the day. Yeah, and then you know it, it kind of ballooned from there to you know making bigger and bigger projects and. Um, 
you know, now, you know, I have a book out right now from Dark Horse called Everyone is Tulip and a book from uh, Floating World called Night Hunters, uh, both of which, uh, you know, I'm very proud of. And, you know, the, the, the fact that we've been able to make these things that didn't exist exist and they are actually like in Barnes and Noble. That's so trippy to me. Like it's, it's really like kind of like a life, life, you know, plateau, whatever, like a, like a, uh, Oh wow. You know, if, if I kicked the bucket tomorrow, there would be these books that would exist that would be on shelves, you know, and that, that's really, really, really cool to me. And Tulip just won, I think best, uh, what's called best, uh, yeah. Comic book of the year or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone is Tulip, which is co-created by Nicole Gu and, and Ellie Hall and myself, uh, got named one of the top 10 uh, best graphic novels of 2021 by Library Journal, um, which is just surreal to me. I'm, I, it's like, what? What? <laughs> what? <laughs> it's so crazy. I, I, I didn't even think it was real because they didn't send it to me. Like nobody told me about it. My friend, Michael, just like texted me and was like, hey, did you see this? And like the, the thumbnail was like the it was you know the the big top line you know best graphic novels 2021 and then the first like the top entry was the cover to our book and my name and i was like that's not real you just like photoshopped this or some shit like this isn't real and and it was and i it's so like genuinely surprising and and validating because in comics is like a really weird small kiddie pool there's like 12 people making comics on a serious level and like three of those people are traditionally on those year end lists and deservedly so those people make really good work but for the people who aren't on those lists every year you're just like fuck man i spent four years on this book and nobody cares or it doesn't feel like anybody sees and to have like finally after publishing who knows how many books made it onto one of these lists it does kind of feel like ha 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 i made it <laughs> uh and then on the other part of it you're you're kind of still just like yeah but i think that the, all those books that i and all of my friends and people that i don't know have made that aren't on these top 10 lists are still valid and like i think that there is something to be said for making the work because you're making the work not in pursuit of accolades you know yeah i think well before we say that i just i got my hands on the comic book like 15 minutes before our talk so oh really a few pages it is so well written it is so well done i think it's, oh it's thank you very very much thank you very well deserved um that's i'm just excited that they're in israel where did you get it was it a, a bookstore a comic book store uh, no, it's not in the comic book story. I, someone was able to scan it for me. So I, I'm oh, I, I, cool, cool. I cool. wanted to see it before I talked to you. And, uh, you yeah, know. yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, uh, that I should, I'll send you a PDF. I meant to do that before this and it com I completely spaced oh, it. I'll send you a PDF no. too when we're, when we're off. Um, but thank you for uh, finding, tracking down a PDF. Um, yeah, but I'm... Uh, it, it, well, regarding what you just said, um, I think it sounds to me like you have to write. 
Oh yeah, completely. So yeah. With validation, without validation, you have to do this. Yeah, I mean, it's it's unfortunate in some ways. <laughs> if I if I dedicated the the amount of time and energy and and uh, blood, sweat, and and treasure to doing things that our society deemed valuable, uh, I'd be in a much different financial place probably. But I don't I don't know any other way of being like it's just it's it's just who I am unfortunately like uh, and and you know I think a large percentage of that too is because of my relationship with the co-creator Nicole Gu her work is so good and we have a partnership that's kind of like very um you know in 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 improv there's this principle of yes and where somebody will say something and you you can't contradict them you have to keep the scene going so you have to say oh that's right that did happen to and then this happened and that's kind of like how our creative partnership is too where like we just sold another book to dark horse and it is completely based off of the stuff that we did in tulip where I would come up with an idea or she would come up with an idea and then uh, the other person would build on it and then the other person would come back and change it. And it's almost like building a sculpture or, you know, architecture, building a building together where there's a, there's an interplay that is just so satisfying and gratifying. And at a certain point you forget whose ideas are whose and you know, what's the, you know, there's, there's no real sense of, authorship in terms of like this is mine i did it it's uh, the authorship is ours like we collectively made that thing and i think that's also why it's so gratifying to have it recognized because in the marketplace typically a specific style of book is rewarded you know it's it's very kind of genre focused it's very kind of you know action adventure or uh you know high concept like this could be a tv show um and that's great i love stuff like that but our book is about a young woman who is from arizona who moves to los angeles to try and become an actor and ends up getting sucked up into this weird back alley of the internet where people um create performance art videos and she ends up going viral for it. And the, this, this internet fame fundamentally changes her relationship to her friends, her family and her immediate surroundings. And so, you know, our book is about kind of this, how far would you go to be able to get what you want? You know, it's a, it's, it's about interrogating artistic commitment or um, it's about interrogating the idea of artistic theft and what does it mean to kind of co-opt ideas Um and I want to live in a world where that is the most popular and mainstream and commercial idea ever. I don't know that it is, you know? I mean, if you look at what movies are getting made, it's 15 Spider-Man movies. And look, man, I fucking love Spider-Man. But it'd be really cool if we had some other stuff released too. Um, and uh, so for our book to, you know, get the accolade that, a librarian somewhere is like, hey, this is cool. We should order more of these. It's really, uh, it's very um, affirming. And oddly enough, humbling. Yes, very, very much so. Very, very, very humbling and very kind of, kind of going back to what I was saying earlier of like, because 
there's so many people that are creating work that is vital and that I think is amazing and typically is overlooked or underserved. I, I don't take it for granted when, you know, our book is on one of these lists and it's, it's in a very prominent spotlight is placed on it. And, um, you know, that, that, that is something that I, uh, take very seriously and, and, you know, feel, feel very fortunate, very, very fortunate, um, because of. Sure. Let's, but we, we skipped about like 10 or 15 years there in the middle. <laughs> we're right. Yeah. Spe- we're, uh, in, uh, what's it called? Spe- I have space case in my head. Not space. What is it? MySpace. Oh in, yeah. Uh, yeah. We're in my space and we jump to the present. So can you like, how, how did you get from here to there? Like, I so I so I self-published like three or four books all through that time um over the next couple years like the after the MySpace era there was kind of a for me there was kind of like a lost in the desert phase where I self-published a bunch of books nobody really cared I was living in Arizona which is not a particularly artistic adventurous place um, or at least I didn't feel that way at the time. I haven't lived there in 10 years. Maybe it is now. I lived in it's Tucson. Not. What? Me too. Oh, in the 80s. Wow. How long How long did you live in Tucson for? Oh, four and a half years. Or something. Yeah. What brought you to Tucson? My father was getting his uh, doctor degree. So. Wow. Was, yeah. Did you like it? What was your experience like? Well, I did like, like... It was a desert, but it wasn't the kind of desert that, that's over here. But I, I liked it. I liked the desert. I did like the heat. I liked the snow in Mount Lemon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It, there was so much space. Everything is flat and takes you know, very flat. Twenty minute drive to get to the closest place. Yeah. Um, I found out that's not specific to uh, Tucson, but everyone had pools. Which yeah, very really nice. Yeah, that's not the case over here. Everyone had pools, um, and I was I was lucky enough to go to uh, to schools that, that were really nice to me. So uh, um, that's it, you know. I was, how, how old, I, I was how, an awkward geek, and uh, <laughs> you and me both. How how old were you when you were in Tucson? I moved when I was eleven, so I moved back fifteen and a half. Oh, okay. Wow. Um, what what kind of what what was the what, what what kind of stuff did you do in Tucson? Like I, I being from there, it's so it's like for me, it was really difficult. There's like three things for you know. There's like a comic book store. Or there's a couple comic book stores. There's like the Loft Cinema and like Tucson Mall. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, occasionally I saw a movie, and but you know, I was the comic book store. And mm, right outside which school, I don't remember. You went like this and then you went like that. That's uh I don't remember the street names. Um all the comic book. Uh, and right outside Rincon High, if you need a name, uh there yep. was a used comic book store. And mm. I had to save my uh, lunch money and then every day like buy something mm. uh, in the store. And, That's amazing. Uh, yeah, I wonder. I wonder what stop store you you frequented, because I've I worked at two two of the four shops in in Tucson. So there's a fifty fifty shot that I worked at 
the place that you shopped at? It was west from where I was. So uh... I was probably fantasy. Was it a was it like a big kind of tan building with no windows? No, no. It, it did have windows. Okay, so then it might have been our galaxy, maybe. Could be. Yeah. Um, yeah, man. Tucson. It's a weird. It's a weird place. You. You were. I feel like you. Uh, you dodged a bullet not having to stay there that long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't do anything. Yeah. I stayed at home. Stayed at home and read stuff and computers were new and played my computer. You know. On the Commodore yeah. 64. Yeah. Uh, that was it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to do stuff in Tucson because it's so hot most of the time. It's just like you stay inside or you get burned to a crisp. <laughs> yeah, I didn't really think about the sun when I was there, and I, I get burned really easy. But uh, I don't know. I come from a much – the temperature is in the sun, but the, temp, but the heat is much more unbearable. Mm-hmm. Because we have humidity, and there's no humidity in Tucson. So uh, yeah, that's like the that's like the Tucson the the Tucson national anthem is just like it's a dry heat. Like everybody always says that, and you can it's funny too because you can kind of spot people who are from Tucson because their skin has a very specific texture. Where like because they've been there for umpty dump years, they're the the like natural moisture that your skin holds. Mm-hmm. that obviously na- naturally decreases as you age it like accelerates there because it's so hot and there's no water in the air that mm-hmm. you get this kind of weird like leathery look to your to your skin a lot of the times yeah so i wasn't there long enough i was there long enough to be impressed by the heat um, yeah the dry heat by the fact that you could play basketball and not sweat yeah you know, totally you know that uh laundry would get dry in like half an hour or something yeah 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 um yeah yeah i mean you know tucson we don't have to keep talking about it <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's a hell of a place so what did you do there uh i'm i'm originally from there so i got the the uh the joyous privilege of staring at the flat horizon being like ah yes i think as much as i'm joking around about it i think there's 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 a good and a bad to that place in that there's not that much to do like literally like on a logistical level there's not that much to do um so it kind of forces you as a person to figure out who you are and what you want very quickly but it also if you don't have the answers to those things if you can't find the answers to those things it for a specific type of person, it really, I think there's no distraction from the void inside and it drives people to do things, you know, like drugs are a really big thing there. Alcohol is a really big thing there. Enlisting in the military after high school is like a lot of what my friends did after high school. Um, And so, like I said, you know, I think that for me, I was very privileged in that I have kind of always had this calling to make books and like tell stories. And even when it seemed like I was crazy to try and do that, that's always what I was going to do. And I was going to die trying and there was no other option. Um, And for some people, a lot of people, 
uh, I don't know that they have that level of connection with something or conviction with something. And so it's really hard in a place like Arizona where there's no, there's not a lot of like internal momentum for the place to keep you occupied. You know, in a big city, you can get sucked up into a scene and, and develop identity around a music genre or experiment with, you know, uh, I don't know, teaching kids English after school in, in, you know, whatever. I, I don't know. You can find passions, you can find things. And it's very, it's very difficult to find those slipstreams in places like um, Arizona, just because it's, it's spread out logistically. The weather is kind of hard to get around in. Like you can't, there's no centralized hub. Everything is very spread out because they can't build up. So they have to build out. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I would, I would, I, I didn't know that. Yeah, they, yeah. So in Tucson specifically, there's a lot of this clay in the ground called caliche, and it, it doesn't allow for um, very strong foundations for like skyscrapers to be built easily. So it's very expensive. You can do it. It's just very expensive, which is why the downtown area of Tucson is so constricted and in terms of you know, it's a city with whatever it is now. I, I mean, it was like a million people when I lived there. I don't, I don't know what it is now. Um, but the downtown area is very specific. Like nothing goes above. There's some ordinance. I don't remember what it is. Let's say it's 10 stories. You can't build anything above 10 stories because they can't guarantee that everything will be safe because of the caliche in the ground. Um, you know that I thought there's just so much room they built I mean, I think it's that as well. I think that also is just like, oh, there's. Why would I spend the money to go up when I can just go out? Mm -hmm. um, so you know, it's D all of the above. <laughs> yeah, um, but so yeah, it, you know, it must have been really um, hard to be to. Most people don't know what they want. And it sounds like you had stories that you had to tell and you, you knew how to tell them. And that made you different from basically everyone else. Yeah, to a certain degree. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's something to be said for once you've done a certain amount of kind of personal introspection, um, and you've kind of decided, oh, this is a part of myself I don't like, and this is a part of myself I do like, and this is a part of myself I can change, and this is a part of myself I can't, um, that it's then on the individual to try and emphasize the good and, um, you know, surgically remove as much of the negative or bad as possible. And for me, the, the only way or the best way that I've managed to do that is by making things, you know, I think that that is the, the best way that I can contribute something. It's the best way that I've found to connect with other people. Uh, it's the best way that I've found to uh, kind of expel the demons and, and kind of emphasize the positive. And I, and I'm, I'm the happiest I am when I'm, even when I'm frustrated and like, ah, I can't believe this book is taking six months longer than it was supposed to. And I'm, ah, whatever the, whatever the trials at hand are, mm -hmm. I would still rather have those headaches than any other ones. 
And connecting to people, how do you feel you connect? Like, would you feel you're connecting to people if you just sat at home with no internet and you say, well, the book is published, people are reading it? Or do you yeah, feel the people when you go to conventions and, you know? It's, I mean, I think it's D all of the above. Like, I specifically, my my book through Floating World co-created with Alexis Zirit, Night Hunters, is a kind of dystopian crime comic set in Venezuela, which is where Alexis is from. And at the end of every issue, you know, the, the book itself is kind of about these two adopted brothers who end up on opposite sides of a law. Uh, in, in Venezuela in the near future, there's this law that's passed that says if you want to have a child in a hospital, run for public office or own property, you have to have been a police officer at one point in time. So it basically just overnight turns the entire state into um, a police, a literal police state. There's just, there's police officers and there's a small percentage of people who are not or will never be police officers. And we follow two brothers, one of whom opts into that system and one who doesn't. And I, I wrote this all before 2020 and the kind of Black Lives Matter movement and the rising tide of totalitarianism and authoritarianism uh, that um, a certain individual who is currently not in the White House, but is definitely going to run again in a year and a half um, uh, spurred on. Right. And the book really for a specific type of person, it really hit a, a, a chord with them. And at the end of every issue, I would write essays about kind of politically what was happening in the country and ways that we could help and things to look out for and um, kind of calls to action. And I received many, many messages and emails from people saying, hey, one, I love the book, but two, that thing you wrote about how like we can't stop, like we have to like all try and band together. And like, I know it seems hopeless, but like we, a collective voice is a voice that we all must use. Like that really helped me through this time or whatever. And that I, I was not intending that, like I didn't intend to be like, and now I'm going to help people. It was just like, this is, this is what I'm experiencing. This is what I'm feeling. Like I have to write about this. And it seems to have really connected with people. And I, I think the book itself works on both levels. It works as an escapist fantasy piece. If you really want to just read a book about, you know, uh, a dystopian science fiction future, or if you're looking for something more, um, that's there too. And that was a very rewarding or very rewarding experience. Very, very, very fulfilling to have the book go out and resonate with people on a, on a deeper level. Um, and uh, again, it was just not something I was expecting at all. <laughs> and what's the craziest like interaction you had with uh, someone away too? Oh man. Well, I've had some really intense ones. I've had some really intense ones. I think the, some of them aren't really fit for reciting because they're so personal where there's somebody who comes to my table at a convention and is like very, very moved by something and shares a personal story. But one that I will say was like just the, the just the, the perfect experience was like 
my book fuck off squad co-created with nicole goo which is all about like gay teenagers in los angeles in a in the skater scene it's all about skateboarding and kind of like trying to figure out who you are um that book also kind of had this weird visceral visceral reaction from people where they would see it they would read the title and they would be like that's me and my friends and a young woman came to our table at a convention and basically said something to the effect of you know i didn't really know what i was going to do with you know my life or anything like i kind of have just been drifting and i feel like after reading this that i i feel like i need to make comics and that to me was like the there is no higher compliment to me personally like that's the that's the pinnacle of human connection when i can share my passion for this art form with someone else who is lost because it's grounded me and helped me in so many ways you know in in some ways i kind of view myself as like a street preacher for the like the the efficacy of comics as a medium and how it is the greatest artistic medium in the history of mankind and especially here in the states you know we don't we don't view it that way because of all of the stuff that happened in the 1950s with the key fall hearings where comics were being burned because they got blamed for inspiring juvenile delinquency, which stunted the medium and basically cemented the idea in an entire generation of humans minds that comics were less than, and that they weren't literate and they weren't important. And that's just such a weird backwards, dumb thing. Um, and to be a small, 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 small brick in the rebuilding of that wall for one other person is just, it doesn't get any better than that for me personally. Cool. That is like, I, I don't know if there's anything more, but those are great final words for uh, the podcast. But I, I do have one more question. So, yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, what, uh, like, what's next? What are you working on now? What are you planning on? Yeah, uh, the next project I'm doing is being published by Simon & Schuster. Um, it's a 224-page graphic novel written by me, illustrated by Nicole Gu of Tulip and Fuck Off Squad. And it is a coming-of-age story about a bunch of teenagers in a Christian uh, boarding school in the middle of nowhere, California, who decide that they're going to start selling bootleg anime DVDs to their uh, their circle of male friends. And these specific DVDs might have some risque sexual components that they are planning to monetize. And uh, we follow this group of kids as they kind of like ascend through the school's popularity ranks, make money, and also kind of destroy all of their relationships simultaneously. Um, so it's all about kind of weaponizing the male gaze and uh, coming of age and figuring out who you are and navigating the gap between being a teen and being an adult and also like, you know, tentacles and laser boobs and, you know, all kinds of Japanese animation stuff. I think, yeah, before we go, I think what you said about being a street preacher, I think it's, it sounds like that's 
That's a very good description of, of your writing as well. It's not that you're preachy, you're not preachy, but, mm. but there's something in the energy of someone who stands in the streets and gets people's interest in a certain way and starts yeah. telling a story and forces them to stay yeah. and listen. I think that there's something there that's that kind of vibe that I'm getting off of. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I think part of that is because like, I think part of that is related to the fact that I'm like a drama kid, you know, like a theater kid. My, my mom's a theater director. I grew up in the theater. So I'm a very kind of like larger than life persona. Uh, and some people really like that and some people don't, and that's fine. That's okay. Uh, but for me, I, I find passive passion antithetical to who I am. You know, if there's something I believe in, it's I really believe in it, and I really try and you know go out and support it and and push it on people, and you know, especially for something like comics, which is a benign, you know, it's not a political opinion. It's not like me saying like, oh, this thing is wrong or this thing is right. It's like it's an artistic medium that you literally can do anything with, and um. I, yeah, I just have a, a, an immense wellspring of passion for the medium and for its capabilities. And I think in a closing note that the reason why I'm so passionate about it is because when you think about the history of film, right? Film is the dominant artistic medium on the planet. And it's been around for a hundred years, only a hundred years. That's not that long. That's like basically one person's lifespan if they eat health, healthy and like run around or whatever. And in that hundred years, there's been so much artistic and technical innovation that movies that were created at the beginning of the artistic medium's lifespan and movies today are almost unrecognizable. They're, they're two just wildly different visual languages. When you look at that for comics, because comics started around... I mean, one, it's an ancient medium. It's been around since the beginning of time. But if you count the, the introduction of the word balloon and the yellow kid in as the birth of the medium, it's not even 100 years yet. We're like at 90 years. And also the medium is basically the same as when it started, which means that there's so much room for experimentation and improvement. Because especially in, in the States, there was a good 50 years half of the medium's lifespan has been dedicated to ostensibly telling the same types of stories with superheroes, right? Because they were the only genre that wasn't outlawed, literally outlawed by a censorship code that was enacted. That's why superheroes became popular because they outlawed horror comics, they outlawed romance comics, they outlawed crime comics, they outlawed everything. So when you think about it from that lens of it's a medium that really has kind of only been around for 50 years in America that hasn't really been nurtured or experimented with or innovated. That to me is just, that makes me excited to sit down and make things. That makes me excited to be like, oh my God, every idea that you have could be an idea that no one has ever tried before in this medium. And that is so exhilarating to me. Another final uh, final word. So where can people find you? Uh, they can find me at heydavebaker.com uh, where you can find all my uh, books 
and a bunch of merch and stuff. Uh, if you want to follow me on stuff, you can do that on the socials. Um, X Dave Baker X is my username on everything. And um, uh, yeah, my next book is coming out July 2022, Forest Hills Bootleg Society with Nicole Goo. Thank you so much to Dave Baker. My first question to him, by the way, before we started recording, was if he was related to Tom Baker, the fourth doctor. Uh, but he said he was not aware of any relationship. So that's for the Whovians out there who are wondering. You can find Dave's links in the show notes. His website is davebaker.com. Uh, on Instagram, Twitter is xdavebakerx. Now, next time, because there's always a next time, there are always more geeks to cover. Next time, I talk to another indie creator who found his own way to survive as an indie. Stick around for that. What did you think about this episode? Email me at guy.hasson at geekdomimpowers.com. Hasson is spelled H-A-S-S-O-N. Write to me. Also, tell me if I can read your email on the podcast. The website is geekdomimpowers.com on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. We're at geekdomimpowers. If you want to check out my other podcast, the Squashbuckler Diaries podcast, it is a massive epic fantasy experiment like nothing you've ever seen. Check that out, the Squashbuckler Diaries podcast. I will see you next time. And for now, have an empowered day.